Uh, hopefully that won't be a distraction for you to be thinking about me because I really want our attention to be on this text this morning. I do appreciate the prayers uh, for my back. I was teasing my wife that it was about two years ago exactly this week that I initially had hurt my back. Some of you remember and had prayed for me and that I told her I was just celebrating an anniversary. And uh, but anyway, I would invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 7 and find your place there. I should say at the outset what my plan is, is we're going to look at the first 15 verses this week and then verses 16 to 26 um, next week. But obviously there's overlap. There's going to be application um, both weeks uh, and referring to both areas of text. And I also confess that this is a passage that has gripped me for some time. I've had it in my to preach folder. Those of us who are preachers and pastors, uh, usually a, a text will grip you. And you'll, you'll write it down somewhere and you'll come back to that so that you can hopefully uh, develop that and preach that at some future date. And this is one that's been in that folder for probably seven or eight years. And so um, it's been a, a, a delight to prepare for this and it's uh, been very convicting as well. In our day and age, you hear lots of advertisements about how to be successful. If you turn on CNBC, the investment channel, you're going to see how to be a successful investor. Buy this kit, learn this, buy, sell triggers, and all these types of things. Perhaps a, a parenting seminar, come and learn how to be a successful parent so that your kids are just perfect angels and never sin. These types of things, uh, various workshops, and these types of things we see, it's very prevalent in our day. I've yet to meet a man who does not want to be successful in what he does. And yet you hear very little about the warnings and the pitfalls of failure and the things to avoid so that you do not fail. Now, the title of the message is The Key to Victory and the Root Cause of Spiritual Failure. And as we turn to the Word of God to learn what does the Word of God say, how we can be successful, what does the Bible say of what we should avoid that we would not be a failure ultimately. Now, as you read the book of Joshua, I trust that, that many of you have read through the Bible and that you're familiar, I hope, with the, the general context. But as you read through the, the book of Joshua, it seemed as though the armies of Israel were undefeatable. They were invincible as they went forth conquering in the promised land. And yet, this in, verse, in chapter 7 and verse 1 stands out and is a big, stark contrast. And it says, but... The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. God is very concerned about the holiness of his people. He is very concerned about their obedience to him. And a lack of obedience to God is sin and displeasing to him and is ultimately the cause of failure. One of the biggest lies of the devil is that you can have this one little sin and you can cherish it and just keep it all to yourself and it won't affect your family, your church, your workplace. And that is a big lie. And the devil is winning that battle as we look at the church at large in our day, as we see perversion and, and sin being permitted to be present there. But the reality is, is that there's no such thing as a secret sin, brothers and sisters. It may be secret for a short time, but all sin will be brought to light. It will be shouted from the rooftops one day. Your sin will be brought to light. If not in this life, it will be brought to light at some point in the judgment. The fact is, is that your sin does affect you. It affects your very soul. It affects your family. It affects your church family. It affects those around you. And don't ever believe otherwise. Jesus Christ is very concerned for the purity of His church. Read and study Ephesians chapter 5. It's very clear there, particularly in that marriage passage as He talks about the purity of the church. And we as elders of Grace Bible Church are very concerned for the purity of our church. And so should you. So I've chosen this particular topic here, and I realize that talking about sin is not going to win a lot of votes. It's not going to be real popular. But I believe as I have prayed, and I've prayed before God, asking what I should preach, the Lord kept bringing this uh, to my mind. And so it's with that that uh, we will be looking at this text. 
Now, the book of Joshua is really a bridge book, it's been called. It's, it's not so much the story of one man, though it's named after a man. It's the first book in the Bible that actually has a proper name, uh, that it's named after a man. But it's more about a story of a conquest, a conquest of, of, of going forth into the promised land and the conquest of Canaan by the tribes of Moses that he had led out of Egypt. It's a transitional book in that the patriarchal age is now fading and now the nation that was being called, it was being formed, it was being trained, is now actually entering the promised land. It is not until Joshua that the promise that was made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is being fulfilled. To your offspring, I will give this land hundreds of years after the promise. And here it is, at least in the physical fulfillment. Now, by way of setting the context of Joshua, perhaps you haven't read it in the last month or week, let me just set forth um, a general overview of the book to where we get to chapter 7. First of all, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last few verses of Deuteronomy, do you remember what happens? Moses is about to die. God takes him up and lets him see the promised land from across the river, and Moses dies. The beginning of Joshua begins with Joshua being called and being commissioned and taking the mantle, taking over for Moses. You will go forth and conquer this land. You will be the one to lead the people into the promised land. Chapter 2 is that wonderful picture of Rahab, the harlot, and a wonderful picture of God's sovereign grace and mercy of how God could save someone like that. Chapter 3 is the actual crossing of the Jordan. Remember, as soon as the priests that were carrying the ark put their feet in the water, the waters were cut off and stopped so that the whole nation could cross. There's all kinds of parallels to the crossing of the Red Sea. It was the same time of year. It was a time of harvest. All those types of things that could be mentioned. Very interesting. Chapter 4 and 5, particularly chapter 5, the Passover is celebrated for the first time in the Promised Land. And then also, all those little boys, all those little boys that have grown up in the wilderness wanderings that are now adults, it's time for that painful event to be circumcised. And so the men are circumcised there, and they, and they, they celebrate the Passover, and that's a wonderful picture of that, that they are God's covenant people now inheriting the land. They've now inherited the land, and now they're ready to go forth and conquer and move on with the conquest. Chapter 6, we looked at just recently, uh, Jim referred to it, as well as chapter 2 from Hebrews 11, but that unusual battle plan and that huge victory that took place there in Jericho as they were conquered there. Now, the context here, chapter 6 is one of great victory. Uh, the, you know, this unusual battle plan, we don't have time to read it, but it was a huge victory. It was a very large city, a very wealthy city. And Jericho is conquered by the people of God. But the victory at Jericho gives way to defeat in Ai. Up to this point, everything in the conquest had gone very smoothly. Progress was moving ahead. And then now, suddenly, the progress has halted because Israel has acted unfaithfully. What a short jump it is from such a great victory in Jericho till now this humiliating defeat in Ai. A little tiny town by comparison to Jericho, and suddenly there's a defeat. Now for us, even as Christians, isn't that true of us? Sometimes we can have a great spiritual high. Maybe we've put to death some besetting sin that we've been struggling with for years, and then pride begins to set in, and the next thing you know, we've stumbled and we're, we're defeated again. We're plunged into a dark valley of spiritual failure. But we're in good company because this has happened with great men through history. Think of Elijah. At one moment, he's at Mount Carmel calling fire down from heaven onto the altar. And one chapter later, two chapters later, he's running from a woman crying out to God, Woe is me, I'm the only one left. And they're seeking to kill me. It's like Joshua. This is a wonderful, great general uh, who had led the armies, of course, to conquer here. And Jericho was this huge victory. You know the story. And the victory was assured by what? Their strict obedience to the battle plan that God had laid forth. 
And at the Battle of Jericho, it's as though since now they have transgressed his holy covenant. And notice I'm saying they. It was the sin of one man, but it was attributed to the nation. And we're going to develop that. Now, they have transgressed God's holy covenant, and God has now removed his blessing from them. So we have three main thoughts this morning. We're going to look at this humiliating defeat as it's laid forth uh, for us here. We're going to look at how the actions of one person affected the whole nation. And then we're going to look at a picture of of a, a character that is honoring to God and glean some of the keys for success in looking at the life of Joshua. Next week, we're going to look in depth at sin's birth and progress, an anatomy of sin, if you will. And then we're going to look at how God judges sin. And then most of all, we're going to look at how God restores and how God cleanses us from sin. And we're going to touch on those things this week, but they will be developed more fuller next week. So our first point this morning is Israel suffers in a humiliating defeat in the town of Ai. Now follow with me. We're going to read the first five verses one more time. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan the son of Carmi, and the son of Zebdi, and the son of Zerai, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban, and therefore the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand need go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men of the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Sherebim and struck them down on the descent so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. We have a series of sad failures here set before us. Israel's armies could only conquer the opposing armies so long as they were faithful to God's covenant. Now, you might ask, how could such a defeat like this follow such a grand victory at Jericho? How could such a defeat happen? And several reasons have been given. Some commentators suggest that Israel had become too self-confident. Pride, being proud. Verse 3, it sure appears that way. The spies come back. Don't trouble the whole nation. Two or three thousand and we can wipe them out. No big deal. Others have suggested that Israel was putting their hope in numbers and their own military excellence. And so the spies came back and said just two or 3,000. Some says, well, it was due to a lack of prayer on Joshua's part. He did not fall on his knees and beseech the Lord what the Lord's will was concerning and the Lord's timing concerning this. He acted quickly on the recommendation of the spies. As soon as they gave the report, he gave the order. Now, all these are true, and they are present. But this isn't the reason that God gives for the defeat at Ai. The reason that God gives, God says that there is sin in the camp. Israel has acted unfaithfully. Verse 1 is really a summary statement of the chapter. Israel has acted unfaithfully. This is the reason that that God gives. And if you look at verse 10 there, we're, we're going to come back to this, but you know, verses 6 to 9, uh, Joshua is, is praying and, and he's humiliating himself before God. But listen to what the Lord says. So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. So despite the command that Joshua had given in chapter 6 and verse 18 to not touch the things under the ban, yet... Someone had touched them, and unfaithfulness has set in. And this crime was imputed to the whole nation. The whole nation was guilty now because of one man's sin. It was as though the whole nation had coveted those items. The whole nation had thought in their mind and taken those items and stole what belonged to God. And it is as though the whole nation was deceitful and hid those items. The sin of one person affected the whole community there. And we see this humiliating retreat 
of Israel running, as it were, with the tail between the legs, running away from the men at Ai, and 36 men being slaughtered. And so, as it says at the end of verse 5, the people's heart melted like water. It melted as though there was no more substance. There was no more hope. They've lost all hope and so that it just became as water and drained out of them. That's the picture there. Achan had robbed the nation of its purity and of its holiness. Achan, one man, had robbed the whole nation of this. And it's a lesson for us that your sin will find you out. Now, let's look back at chapter 6 and verse 18. The command is given uh, in verse 16 for the priest to blow the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, shout. And look at verse 18 and 19. But as for you, only keep your souls from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble to it. But all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They are to go to the treasury of the Lord. The King James Version says it's the accursed thing. The things under the ban seem to tone it down a little bit. I kind of like the King James here. Touch not the accursed thing. That's the force of it. Don't touch it. Don't covet it. Don't get too close to it. And do not take it. That's the idea here. And so the whole army of Israel, as it went forth into that battle of Jericho on that day, had that ringing in their ears, and not one soldier dare touch the things under the ban. Not one, except for one man, Achan. Achan coveted, and he took it. The consequence is that the anger of the Lord was kindled, not just against Achan, but against the whole nation. God had made it clear that until this was dealt with, that there could be no more victory. He, would re- he has removed His blessing from the nation. And this is abundantly true for us today. The favor of the Lord upon the church of Jesus Christ is to the degree that we live upright lives and that we are gleaning examples that we're our lights in a fallen world. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Right? Just a little bit, and it's going to spread. It's going to spread. It's, it's like if you have a basket of apples, you know, and, and you've got one rotten apple at the bottom of that basket. What happens? They all become rotten. And so that's why it's so important to maintain purity, to maintain holiness in the church of Jesus Christ. Because if one rotten apple is allowed to stay and remain in that place, it's going to eventually spread. And if you look at the circus or the church today, which is becoming more and more like a circus, we see that. Church discipline has been removed. Adulterous relationships are allowed to continue with the full knowledge of the pastoral ministry, of the pastoral staff. I know of several churches where this takes place. Couples fornicating and pastors too too cowardly to confront it and to challenge it and to tell them to stop that it's sin. It's not happening in our day as it should. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this is a clear call for us. Personally, first and foremost, but corporately as a church, to remove ourselves from sin. To remove ourselves from sin. To touch not the accursed thing. If you touch what is unclean, you will bring upon yourself great spiritual loss. You will bring upon your family great spiritual loss. You will devastate your family. You will devastate those in the church. And your testimony of being a Christian in this world will be greatly hindered. It will be greatly hindered. And it's grievous to me when I talk to people and they bring up examples of those who take the name of Christ and are living immoral lives. They've left their wife. They have a mistress and all these types of things. And I try to say, no, no, no. That's not a real Christian. 
A real Christian does not live in that lifestyle and permit himself to continue on in that. Please do not put all Christians in that basket. Bring shame on the name of Christ. While you touch the accursed thing, while you play with habitual sin, there can be no victory. There can be, there can be no blessing from God. There will be no satisfaction in Jesus Christ as you play with these things. And so you have to remove yourself from them. Our attitude towards sin is the key to our defeat or our victory. You see, God is altogether holy. God hates sin. He says, be holy for I am holy. And if we don't understand, well, what's God's will for my life? Very clearly, this is God's will, your sanctification. That is your holiness. That is being set apart. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Too many Christians get as close to the world as they can or to some certain sin, and they, they begin to look first and foremost, and then they begin to ponder. And then they say, well, maybe I can just touch. That won't hurt me, will it? And the next thing you know, you've fully embraced it, and you're cherishing that sin. Touch not the accursed thing. Rather, we need to get as close to Christ as we can, as close as we can to His cross in an understanding of 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 what He had paid for on the cross for my sin. How could I dare go over here and touch that when I know that He has died for my sin? The very sin that I want to touch and cherish is the very one that He paid for on the cross on my behalf. That's the mindset we need to have. We need to be close to Christ. We need to be in His Word. We need to be communing with Him. We need to be with God's people so that we can be strengthened, so that we will not want to go over there, so that we can look on it for what it really is, the pathway to hell. Do not touch the accursed thing. May God give us grace. May God purify us as a church. We're going to look at this more next week, but James chapter 1 kind of gives the degrees of sin or uh, the, the, the pathway to sin. First, the mere thought enters the mind. And then the mind begins painting a picture and just putting it back here. I'll just turn around and look at it sometimes. Sometimes I'll look at it. And then the next thing that happens is the sweetness of this sin, or so you think it's sweet, begins to move down. And it begins to convince the will, the volition, that maybe I can just touch that. And then the next thing you know, the act has now been committed. And according to James, the end of that is spiritual death. That's the end of sin. You see, that's why we have to guard our hearts and our minds. That's why we have to not even paint the picture. And if we do paint the picture, we're going to tear it down when we can by faith and throw it away. We have to nip sin in the bud when it enters the mind. Children, listen to me. How does a worm get in an apple when your parent goes to Henry's Marketplace and you see a little wormhole? How does the worm get inside the apple? We say, well, it must just burrow itself through that thick red skin and work itself in, right? No. Rather, an insect lays an egg on the blossom before the apple is even grown. And so the apple grows with that inside of the apple, not yet alive. And then that egg hatches. And then the worm burrows itself out of the apple. Now, I hope you see the clear illustration. Sin is like that worm. It begins deep down in our heart. It begins on the inside. We can't blame our circumstances for our sin. It begins in the heart. And it works its way out through the thoughts and words and actions of our, of our disposition. This is why we need to guard the heart. And when we see the worm wiggling and trying to work itself out, that we get the insecticide or whatever it takes to kill the worm. Well, moving on, what were some of the characteristics of Achan's sin? Again, we're going to look at these briefly and develop them more next week, but... Do you see any of these characteristics in your life 
Just ask yourself as we would go through these quickly. First of all, Achan's sin was a deliberate sin. It was not one of those categories of sins set forth in Deuteronomy that was um, a sin of ignorance. It was a willful transgression of what God's will was. It was a deliberate sin. It was sacrilege because he was really stealing from God. He was taking that which belonged to God and saying, I want it. As Christians, we can sing together. Number 585 in our Trinity hymnals, Take my life and let it be. But when we get to that part, take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. Can we sing that from the truth of our heart? Are we lying in some way? Is maybe we've put our hope in some riches or some gold or some silver or something that belongs to God? I think there's an application to tithing there. Not a mite would I withhold. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't keep something to feed your family and to pay your bills. But God says tithe. He says give to the local church. There's a principle that is clearly set forth in the Word of God. The book of Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 8. People says, how have we robbed you? And God says, you've robbed me from tithes and offerings. Jesus would say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but render to God the things that are God's. Are we like Achan? Are we digging holes in our tent and our bedroom and, and stockpiling stuff that belongs to God? There's nothing wrong with saving and planning and those types of things. But are we making it a priority to see the gospel go forth in supporting the local church? Achan's sin was one that was filled with hypocrisy. He knew what his sin was, and he lived in it, and he put on all the appearances as though all was well with the community of believers. There was a carnal lust, a lust in his eyes, and ultimately it was an unbelief that God would provide for him. He had just wandered for years in the wilderness, eating manna, the same shoes, the same clothes, and perhaps he said, you know, enough. I'm taking matters into my own hands. And the other thing besides the silver and gold was a Babylonian cloak. Something that, that, that describes the fashion of the day. And, you know, I'm tired of these old clothes. I'm going to take this. We're going to look at that later. Achan had a reckless concern for the effects of his personal sin on those around him. A reckless concern. And we need to be careful of that as well. Consider that from then on, all the other cities in the land had heard about this loss and they had a hope of beating Israel's army. He was unconcerned for the reputation of God, wasn't he? He didn't care if God's reputation was muddied. I hope you care for God's reputation. So, a little more application before we move on. We must remember that the key... of what the key to victory is and what the cause to failure is. We must resolve to stand upright in this world, a world that is trying to compress us and push us into its mold, a world that is trying to flow us south down the river, and it's as though we're swimming upstream, a fish swimming upstream, stemming the tide. Sin causes failure, and there's a constant danger of sin. Keep in mind, Achan was fighting the Lord's battle in Jericho, right? In Joshua chapter 6. He's fighting the Lord's battle when he fell into sin. And so that tells us that in the midst of our, the external battle that we're going through, there's an even more important battle going on. The battle of an inward, pure life before God. Even as you go through the external motions of serving in your ministry and desiring to honor God, there's a more important battle deep within your own heart. And we must resolve to continue to put sin to death and to strive after holiness. Achan not only got near the things that were under the ban, but he touched the accursed thing and he wholeheartedly embraced it. For us, how many things has God said? Do not touch the accursed thing. Do not be conformed to the world. And yet, we compromise in so many ways. Perhaps 
just consider the use of your time. God tells us, redeem the time because the days are evil. And how someone can justify watching a television set for 30 to 40 hours a week is beyond my understanding. But yet many Christians do. There's so much perversion that comes forth, especially even in the commercials. I'm not saying all of that is wrong, but it's all about moderation, isn't it? Or how about video games? Video games for every waking hour, even eating while you're playing. This has become a real problem, especially with our young people. Moderation. Entertaining lustful thoughts. Saying, as long as it stays here and I don't allow that picture to move down into my heart and begin to change my will, it's okay. It's my own little fantasy world up here. And it's a reel-to-reel or a video, to put it in modern vernacular, that I can play anytime I want. You can't do that. Some Christians, many Christians, sadly... Up to a third of all Christian men look at pornography or have looked at it in the last year, I think, is the recent statistic I've heard. This ought not be. And how many Christian men are even enslaved to it? And they can't stop, so they think. This ought not be. Touch not the accursed thing. Do not lay your eyes on it. Do not get near it. And perhaps there's someone here that have already allowed that picture back here to begin moving into the will. And perhaps you're on the verge of an immoral relationship. Maybe it's just a casual flirt once every two weeks with the new secretary or something like that. You better believe it. Your sin will find you out. And once you get on that slope and you find out that it's a slippery wax, you will slip and you will fall. Cut off sin. Nip it in the bud. Confess. Get accountability. Do not flirt with sin. Don't even get near it. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to see how important it is to cultivate the inward life. To cultivate holiness in your life. That is to use all the means of grace that God has provided for you so that you will not be tempted to sin in these ways. Because... Let me tell you, temptation will come. It will come. And if you're weak and you've been playing around with allowing your mind and loosey-goosey kind of thinking and these kinds of things, you can fall. Temptation will hit you. It will hit you hard. It will hit you when you least expect it. It will come upon you suddenly. And you must be able to resist. When you least expect it, it will come upon you. And for some, sadly, it will overtake you. This is why you must strive for a stability in your life, for for a, a faith that is increased and nourished and strengthened so that you can withstand the wiles of the devil, so that you can withstand all the world trying to compress you into its mold, you can break out of it just as Samson did with the strength of Samson because your faith is strong and you've cultivated that inward life. But if you're neglecting those things, temptation will come upon you and it will hit you at a time when you least expect it. But remember, for true Christians... Those that are His chosen ones, when we do sin, when we do stumble, sometimes we do get too close and we embrace it and we stumble and we fall. That for God's children, He will raise them up. He will enable them to confess. He will enable them to to cut off sin, to have a biblical repentance and then come again to Christ for cleansing and renewal. You see, Christ has conquered sin for us. The shackles of sin that we used to be enslaved to, that we could not break out of, now the shackles are broken. You are not a slave to sin anymore if you're a child of God. You can say no to sin, and we must. Moving on, we've looked at Israel's defeat, the characteristics of Achan's sin, and now let us consider Achan's sin caused God's displeasure to come upon the whole community. 
This is the next important truth that though this one man's sin, it was one man's sin and it affected the whole community. We must learn from this that God takes sin very seriously. Look in chapter 7 and verse, the beginning of verse 12, it says, Therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. In the middle of 13, the same thing. That you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things that are under the ban from your myths. Or until you have removed what is the accursed thing. One person's sin affected the whole nation. How can this be? Is this right? How many were in the nation? A couple million? This one person's sin? Yes. And we must believe that. Now, today there's a sports game on uh, called the Super Bowl. Over one billion people in the world will be watching it. I know better of you that when halftime comes around, if you choose to watch it, that you'll remember we have evening services tonight. I better get up and go so that I can be strong when temptation comes. But... Consider this, that most football games come down, now it's a team effort, but most football games, the loss will come down to the effects of one man or one mistake, oftentimes, right? And consider that even the Chargers, they're not there because of one such man. When Nate went to kick that tying field goal at the end of the game, he missed it. He missed it, and they lost. And all the commentators that wrote about that said, the Chargers are really the better team, and yet they lost. Now, Israel was the better army, but they lost because of one man. And so that you see how important it is that the whole nation experiences defeat due to one person. And just as in a football game, the same would be true. Now, it's interesting, in chapter 8 and verse 25, when they do conquer Ai, if you look over there, they wiped out all of them. And it says, all that fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000. 12,000 total. This is a Julian. This is a tiny little, it's San Diego going up to Julian or something. It's so tiny. Less than 3,000 fighting men for sure, if there's women and children included in that 12,000 number. And so by, by sheer numbers, Israel should have won with the 3,000, but God was teaching them a lesson, wasn't he? He was using this to illustrate perhaps the smallest town in the conquest has beat them because of sin being in the camp. Well, let's look at Joshua's response in verse 6 to 9. Joshua tore his clothes. He fell on the earth before the ark and the Lord of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us, if only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants, inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, the morning described in verses 6 to 8 is not so much about the loss of 36 men, although that's, that's, that's a biggie, right? It's not so much about that, but it's that the armies of Israel that had been invincible have been defeated. That's what the morning was about. And he grieved. He was grieved, and that demonstrates at least an outward humility, uh, right? I mean, he's, he's putting dust on his head, and, and he's, he's falling down before the ark, and he's praying to God. But as we take a closer look at this, if you look at his prayer in verses 7 and 8, it sounds more like the grumbling of the people to Moses in Numbers 14. When Caleb and Joshua had come, when the spies have come back from looking at the land, and the other spies are giving the, the bad report, Joshua and Caleb are the lone voices saying, "No, we can take them. We we can go. We, the Lord, with the Lord's help, we can certainly overtake them." And so he sounds more like those who he was rebuking then in this prayer, when he says, "What will you do, God?" It, it's you know, should Joshua think that that, that God has changed his mind? That God would break his promise to Abraham? That, that the purposes of God have now been altered? 
It was a prayer that lacked faith in many regards. There's good things and bad things about it. God was not pleased with this prayer. In verse 10, the very beginning, the rise up is really considered like a rebuke to Joshua. Rise up. That's enough. It's time to take action. There's sin in the camp. Don't wallow there. And how much of our time when we pray, when we confess sin, are we blame shifting and are we blaming others? And if only I had a wife that was more understanding or a husband that loved me more and these types of things. We blame shift instead of fully acknowledging our sin. And that's what Joshua is doing here in some small detail. We must be thoroughly honest about our sin and especially with God in prayer. Well, in verses 10 to 13, the correction comes. Verse 11 says, Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. So they have stolen what belonged to God. And in verse 21, when Achan's Verse 20 and 21, he says, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle, that's a cloak of Shinar, it's another word for Babylon, and the 200 shekels of silver and the bar of gold and the 50 shekels of, uh, 50 shekels of weight. Then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside of my tent with the silver underneath. We learn from this that at least from Joshua's prayer here, there there was sin in the camp. It needed to be dealt with. It needed to be judged. It needed to be confessed. And they needed to be renewed. Unconfessed sin produces an unacceptable worship to God. Hence, God's rebuke in the midst of his prayer. Rise up. Take action. Then come to me. It produces unexpected defeats in our life. If you're living with unconfessed sin and you wonder why, why do I keep stumbling and stumbling and stumbling? It's because you need to go back and confess those things. And unconfessed sin requires action. So the remedy is to confess, to repent, to plead for renewal and to to plead for cleansing that, that only God can give. Verse 13, he says, again, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban. This is the same word that we would, it's the Old Testament word for sanctify or holy. It's sanctify yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Be separate. Set apart. Prepare yourselves for tomorrow. For there are things under the ban in your midst. Or as the King James says, the cursed thing in your midst. Paul, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, that chapter that um, deals with the immoral man, says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then later in that chapter, he says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother who is immoral and etc., etc. He says, not even to eat with such a one. And he says, remove the wicked man from amongst yourselves. Pretty much what God is saying here to Joshua. You have business to do. You need to remove this wicked man. Unjudged sin hurts the greater body of Christ. And that's why I think God in His wisdom has instituted church discipline. So that that rotten apple would not spread to the other apples. And it's not a popular thing to do. But keep in mind, brethren, that the goal of church discipline is restoration. That is a mercy that is set up for you that if you begin to go astray, that you have pastors, faithful pastors, hopefully, who will grab hold of you and pull you back and rebuke you and and point you on the right way and to help you. The goal is restoration. But sometimes every person that's church discipline is not restored. 
and then they've got to be cast out. They've got to be removed because it's unhealthy to have them around those who are living pure lives. They will influence. Well, how did Joshua discover that Achan was the guilty one? Verse 14, in the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes, and that shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So the Proverbs says the lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So lots were used, probably tablets with names of the individual tribes and then the families. But can you imagine the whole nation coming out for this that morning? And literally the whole nation not knowing who is it, which tribe? Is it from Benjamin or what? And so the tribe is now discovered that it's Judah. Everybody else steps aside. All of Judah comes in. And then it's the household. Or no, then it's the family. And then it's the individual households. And then the individual man. Be careful. Your sin will find you out. Now, this was made by Lot. This decision was made by lots that was drawn. But... The Lord will, every decision comes from the Lord, and He will expose every sin. We must be convinced from the Word of God that He takes sin seriously. All sin is a transgression against God. Listen to Plummer. He says this, We never see sin right until we see it as against God. All sin is against God in this sense, that it is His law that is broken, His authority that is despised, in his government that is set not. Pharaoh, Balaam, Saul, and Judas each said, I have sinned. And I'll add Achan to the list because he says it. I have sinned. But the returning prodigal said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The same is true of David. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Psalm 51 an acknowledgement that not only have you sinned, but you've sinned against a holy God. So, when a stark contrast happens in your life after such a victory in Jericho, and then, but, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. When an intense trial comes your way, I hope you're on your knees. I hope you're examining yourself. And I hope you're asking, God, are you trying to get my attention about something in my life? Is there something I need to be thinking of? Is there something that needs to be brought to the forefront of my mind that I might deal with that? And we ought to follow Joshua's example. We ought to go to prayer and beseech him. But we need to examine ourselves in this. It's because of God's great love for you that he will get your attention in whichever way it takes. We are skipping the whole third point and to draw some concluding applications this morning. We've seen uh, the key to victory um, and the cause of failure. The key to victory is set up in Joshua chapter 1. I'd encourage you to read that chapter. He was a man that loved the Word of God. He knew the Word. He meditated on the Word. And most of all, he obeyed the Word of God. That's the key to victory, and we're going to develop that next week. But brothers and sisters, for this morning, I think what the Lord would have us to be reminded of is that beware of cherishing some secret sin. Beware of clinging to some sin that's in your life, thinking that no one else knows about it. It's just in the reel-to-reel in my mind, and I can play it whenever I want. Be careful. Temptation will hit you hard, suddenly, and you will fall. And that will eventually motivate the will to commit the act. God is just concerned about sin today as He was in Joshua chapter 7. And you say, well, that was just the Old Testament when He dealt with you know, stoning them to death and then burning all the belongings and the whole family. No. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Now, God may not deal as openly with sin and judging sin before our eyes, but God does not change. He is holy, and He will judge sin. The wages of sin is death. Beware of having a hypocritical religion. Beware of of living a lifestyle like this. 
read Matthew 23 again and again and again so you can understand what Jesus Christ thinks of hypocrites. Never forget the surprising effects of your sin, that it affects beyond you. It will affect your family and the community of believers. And for some of you, maybe the Lord's brought something to mind. You need to repent of that. Confess that. Come back to Christ again and receive the cleansing. Be washed afresh with His blood. But then get accountability. And use the means of grace that your faith may be strengthened, that you would not fall in these things again. Your sin will find you out. And then if you are here and you're not a Christian, Achan was not a Christian. He had the outward... He was playing the role, but he was not a Christian. If you're here today, and maybe you're thinking like Achan, maybe you're playing with religion, maybe you have on a nice facade, and maybe you blend in to the rest of us, remember, your sin too will be judged. It will be judged. Get right with God now. Come to Him. Cry out in mercy. He will not turn you away if you come to Him by faith, confessing your sin, turning from your sin, biblical repentance, and coming to Christ for salvation. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the reminder that you are very concerned for the purity of your people. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with each and every one in this room. And Lord, we pray that you would even send the Holy Spirit to empower us to have the proper response to an unpopular message. Lord, we know that you are concerned with the purity of your church and the holiness of your people. And so I pray, God, that you would send strength, that you would increase our faith, that you would help us to remain strong in the face of temptation and in the world that is trying to force us into its mold. Oh, God, we know that you, with you there is victory. And so, God, I pray that you would do a work in our midst today. In the name of Jesus, amen.